This is WMNF Tampa. Time for Talking Animals. Walks like an animal, talks like an animal, must be an animal. Come here, the animal, talking animal, talking animal. This is Talking Animals on WMNF. I'm Duncan Strauss, and this is a recorded version of Talking Animals, once again produced remotely at the corporate headquarters in Jupiter Farms, Florida. Today, I will feature two interviews I've recorded in recent days. The first, which I'll air in just a moment, is with Dr. Carl Safina, the ecologist and author of several books, most recently, Becoming Wild, How Animal Cultures Raise Families, Create Beauty, and Achieve Peace. Safina has been a recipient of a MacArthur Genius Prize, as well as Pew and Guggenheim fellowships among many other awards. I know what you're thinking. Yeah, but does the man have anything upstairs? It seems so. His books are complex and probing, steeped in science, extended first-hand observations, and a fundamental concern for how the natural world is deteriorating and the attendant formidable challenges for the animals of that world. In the new book, Becoming Wild, Safina explores how three different species, sperm whale, scarlet macaws, and chimpanzees deal with culture, how each species learns, teaches, and creates culture. Safina goes deep and wide here, settling in for extended stays with those species, joined by top researchers of each. It all makes for a rich, fascinating read that may alter the way you think of animals, how they interact, and otherwise function. We'll hear all about the book and more when I air my interview with Dr. Carl Safina in just a moment here on Talking Animals on WMNF. Also, as you probably know, WMNF has been gradually and very carefully bringing back programmers to broadcast directly from the station. As part of that schedule, I'm tentatively due back in the WMNF studio on June 24th. I'm really looking forward to it. Also, ordinarily around this time in June, we'd be in the midst of the summer fun drive. We'll still be holding one, but given the social distancing and other precautions we're observing at the station, we can't do a conventional fun drive. Only 10 people total are allowed in the entire station currently, so we can't assemble our usual crew of fun drive phone answerers and other volunteers. So we'll be improvising with a gradual fun drive spread out over the coming weeks. More details to come, but if you'd like to support Talking Animals in the meantime, please go to the Talking Animals tip jar on WMNF.org or email me directly at Duncan at WMNF.org. Meanwhile, later in today's program, I'll air another interview I recorded recently, this one with Gail Carroll, who with her husband Paul is a longtime puppy raiser, helping these canines prepare to become guide dogs under the umbrella of Southeastern Guide Dog. I should note that Carroll's also maintain a longtime affiliation with WMNF. I got to thinking recently that a central aspect of being a puppy raiser is taking the dog to a wide range of places and settings, stores, restaurants, ball games, airports, radio stations, among others. So what happens when the COVID-19 restrictions keep puppy raisers from taking their assigned dog to almost all those places? 
answers to that question and general information about puppy raises will be offered. When I air that conversation with Gail Carroll later in today's program, right now, in an interview recorded Monday about his new book, Becoming Wild, this is Carl Safina on Talking Animals on WMNF. Thanks for joining us again on the show. Well, always a great pleasure. So, Thank you. Yeah, well, congratulations on the new book, which has been received with great enthusiasm and drawn glowing reviews. We spoke in 2015 when you had just published Beyond Words, What Animals Think and Feel. And in reading Becoming Wild, I wondered to what extent the new book could be seen as something of a sequel to Beyond Words, a deeper dive in the uh, overused parlance. Well, it, yeah, you could see it as a sequel. I don't really see it that way. I, the way I thought of it was more of a follow-on, that there were some things in Beyond Words that I couldn't really get as into, uh, you know, just for, just for matters of length and detail. Yeah. that seemed to, you know, seemed to rate a book of their own. And, and that was the major topic of culture in other animals, culture in non-humans. And I wanted to get into that. And as I was, as I was working on the book, I think that that book, to me anyway, it, it pulled away from uh, my previous book, Beyond Words, and became even more of its own book, a standalone thing, than I had even planned at the outset. Oh, that's interesting. Well, that because that kind of brings me to a, a slight chicken or egg question. So, when formulating the idea for one of your books, but let's say specifically for Becoming Wild, did you think, hey, I want to explore animal cultures in a rich, meaningful way. Now, which animals should I zero in on to most effectively develop that narrative? Or did you already have notes in a file somewhere that it says, okay, at some point, I'd really like to study in greater detail and in person sperm whales, scarlet macaws, uh, chimpanzees, and then decide to kind of fasten those uh, objectives together. It was more the former. Yeah. Uh, it wasn't really working off notes I already had yeah. uh, in a file. Um, I, I do have a file of ideas. It's, it's more like a list of ideas for possible books. Right. And that, that was probably one of them. I actually don't exactly remember how it emerged. But I think I think that the idea solidified from a number of things I had been reading and thinking about yeah. and writing about. Right. Well, yeah, I guess I meant more not necessarily strictly literally a, a file with those ideas, but just that in your mind you might have been thinking, well, here are some animals that I'm interested in, love to spend some time with, and this does connect to kind of this idea that, that I'm working around in my head about cultures and so exploring those. So I just well, it was the animals followed the idea rather than rather than the idea following the animals it, with, with one exception though the, the middle part of the book about macaws mm -hmm. I macaws are not known or thought of or really really um, studied as cultural animals um, but I just was very very intrigued by them having seen them in uh, in Peru on a previous trip and noting that even though I used to I used to study birds uh, wild free living birds for a living mostly seabirds and so I, I have a, you know I have an eye for birds and I've never seen any other kind of bird do what macaws do all the time which is in a flock they, they are obviously paired up so that if you see 12 macaws flying it's usually obvious that it's six pairs of two and I, I've never seen any other birds where you can easily see who is with who inside the flock so I wanted to go back I, I strongly suspected that it would be pretty rich if I started scratching that and it turned out to be 
Yeah. Well, and they're very interesting. I was not really, I was probably least familiar with the macaws coming into your book of, of the animals that you really focused on. And I came away quite enchanted with them because they're, as you say, the way they pair up like that. But just their personalities and their apparent love of hanging out. And, yeah. And, uh, but of course, a big part of this section revolves around beauty. And, and so maybe, could you talk a little bit more since we're sort of onto macaws at this point about just that idea of beauty and who either creates or assesses beauty, uh, when it, especially relative to macaws, but maybe more broadly? Yeah, sure. Well, first of all, more broadly, when, when Darwin was talking about uh, the mechanism of evolution, he first came up with natural selection, which is basically that the environment, the physical and the living environment, are, are, are basically a filter. And um, it, you know, it's very hard to survive, and the ones who don't quite have it don't survive, so they don't get to reproduce. And that could explain easily something like camouflage, right? If, if you are hard to see, you're more likely to survive than if you stand out. So that was good. That works for a lot of things. But Darwin said that his own idea could never explain something like a peacock or for that matter basically all the other male birds that are really bright and really showy there must be another mechanism going on and so in addition to what he called natural selection he came up with what he called sexual selection which is that it's the the, the males that get a chance to breed are the ones that have the look that the females want to see and that look is a thing that is arbitrary but it's but it's specific to each species so uh, you know a male cardinal looks red a male oriole looks like an oriole etc on down the line and those two things accounted for a lot of what we see in the diversity of the living world many many people don't really think of sexual selection they, they kind of have never heard of it or they lump it in with natural selection it's a very very different kind of thing and the, and the the biggest difference is that in that case you actually have living things choosing the look that they want which is a very you know, if you if you realize it that way, it's kind of a very radical view of the world. Now, with the macaws, it's not just males that are really showy. It's males and females that are equally showy. And so what, what that says is that these birds have an aesthetic sense that they've been choosing. And, and further, the macaws are by far the biggest of the parrots in the, in the New World, in the Western Hemisphere. But there are dozens of parrot species, and all the rest of them are basically the color of leaves. They're basically all green and camouflaged. But when they get, when the macaws, some, for some reason, got big enough to basically be too big for most of the hawks that might catch a smaller parrot, they exploded with color. So the macaws are, uh, they just look like a, a, a fruit cocktail, and none of the other parrots do. And, and the main difference between them and the other parrots is they're just basically big enough to not have to worry too much about getting eaten by something. And so it's almost as if there's this aesthetic pressure within life, that life prefers and chooses beauty, and it, and it explodes into being in these macaws. And I think, you know, macaws are, are basically, they're a very good example of what I'm talking about, and they're, they're, they're the creature in the book that led me into all of these thoughts. But once you start looking around with that idea in mind, you see other examples of that kind of thing, and you realize that, yes, mo 
much of the physical beauty in the living world is is not a practical day-to-day survival kind of beauty the way that camouflage is or the way that uh, you know having sharp claws is if you're a cat but it's just purely aesthetic and um, I find that to be like it's like turning a, a page on a whole new chapter in understanding what's going on in life so that if you start looking closely at a lot of animals even if you look at let's say um, the eyes of a leopard or a jaguar or, or then you start looking at many other animals and realizing the same thing. They're they're lined with either either black or white. You know, they look they look made up, and and these things are are I believe purely aesthetic things. Um, and I think that many animals have an aesthetic sense that they that, that they use in choosing mates. We know this is very true with the birds in which only the male is showy, but I, I think it goes much much wider than that. Yeah, and it's interesting as you note that the macaws, both genders, are really beautiful in that way and striking, but also as you uh, mentioned along the way there that it's not as it would be in maybe other species, putting them in a vulnerable spot as much because their sheer size makes them less vulnerable, I guess, really, to predators even though their colors and their beauty would otherwise be attention grabbing. That's correct, yes. I, I, I believe that that is exactly what's going on. Yeah, really interesting. And uh, I want to get to a number of other things in our short time here. So, But I just want to, before we leave possibly the subject of birds, uh, maybe we'll come back to them. But I have to at least briefly hit on bower birds, which yeah. uh, just because I was not familiar with those before. I mean, there's courtship rituals and then there's courtship rituals. I mean, that is uh, something quite unusual. Maybe you could just briefly touch on that for folks who aren't uh, familiar or haven't yet yeah, had that, a chance that to read may the book. Be, yeah, that may be the extreme in courtship rituals in birds. Yeah. And the best example of a purely aesthetic sense in non-human animals. Bowerbirds are a number of species. I think they're around 20, it says in the book, I can't remember, I think it's around 20 species. And they build what's called bowers that are um, sometimes like huts, sometimes like um, a, a lane, a walled lane with an open roof. Um, they are structures that are mostly made of thousands of twigs, and then they are just remarkably decorated where some species of bowerbirds like to decorate with things that are blue, some like to decorate with things that are red, and if you go in and you mess with their decorations, they'll put it back the way they wanted it. Now, the bower, this is really the, the, um, the thing that really clinches it as far as this being purely aesthetic. The bower is not their nest at all. The bower is only a seduction theater where the male courts the female and the female assesses the male by how good his bower is and whether she likes it. And then um, if she does like it, the only contribution the male makes to their breeding is mating. And then the female goes and makes a nest and she incubates the eggs alone. So the, these, these birds that are named for these remarkable structures their bowers um, are engaging in all this stuff for reasons that are based purely on aesthetic. Yeah, I mean it's really remarkable because it would still be kind of uh, striking if the mating actually did take place there but the fact that it's just like look at what I've built here and look at the colors and the construction and the decorations and whatever but otherwise if this works we're not going to have anything to do with it after that I mean that's right that's, right that's really uh, right and 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 she may say nice try but right 
Yeah. Work on it for a few more years because I'm going to go check out this other guy who's more mature and he knows what he's doing. Yeah. And that's that's actually what happened. No, that's really, it's so, I mean, this is one of the things that makes animals just generally so awe-inspiring that there's a story like this and, and how that actually worked. And that indeed, that the one we're talking about, the, the hypothetical one we're talking about, might do some more work on their on their bower and then maybe uh, down the road, maybe she will find it just exactly what she's looking for. Right, and and the younger males watch the older males um, to learn what they need to do to be sexy. Yeah, yeah. This, they're watching their own home improvement channels, I guess. Of some yeah, yeah. 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 So this is Talking Animals on WMNF. I'm Duncan Strauss, and my guest is Carl Safina, whose new book is Becoming Wild, How Animal Cultures Raise Families, Create Beauty, and Achieve Peace. This interview was recorded Monday. So I want to get on to chimps, but I want to at least spend a moment, of course, on some whales, uh, too. I mean, there were so many things that, as we talked about with the bowerbirds, that just filled me with wonder and underscored the awe of, why animals inspire me and why I just love to talk about them with people like you. So when looking at, uh, in the uh, sperm whale section, I mean, there was a number of things that were interesting, but can you talk a little bit about the songs, sperm whales, like when it comes to clans and, and how they're sort of unique to that clan and and so so to the extent where any another clan wouldn't uh, have the same kind of song, but, but then the songs change, but they still remain singular. I mean, that, that just seemed really captivating to me as well. Yeah, well, the um, the humpback whale is the greatest singer among the whales, and the um, their songs last for maybe twenty minutes or so, and they they are songs because they're constructed identically. They always sing the same song when when they're singing. It's got a pattern, and then when they're done, they repeat it. But the amazing thing is that. Every year, the song changes, and every male humpback whale in that particular ocean, whether it's the Atlantic or the Pacific or the Indian, every, every whale in each ocean sings the same song, but the song changes every year, and it's different in each ocean. So it's a purely cultural thing. It's like a hit song. They, you know, somebody innovates somehow, and then they all learn to sing it. And there's, um, I, I was about to say there's nothing else like that, but there probably are other things like that. There's, there's nothing else like that that I know of, and, um, and they certainly do sing the most elaborate songs. Now, there are some other whales that, that also sing what's called songs, and those songs are, are much shorter. They're, they're, not as, um, they're, they're not nearly as obvious or as haunting, and... Uh, you know, so the humpback is the extreme that yeah. we know of. But isn't it wild that over time, over X amount of years or whatever, you'd think if you applied some other kind of logic that clearly doesn't really apply, but that just by chance a clan might stumble onto the same song or same kind of song that a previous clan had had. But the fact that they're always totally different, even as they change from period to period. Right, and they're obviously paying close attention to each other. Yeah, yeah. No, that's really uh, interesting, interesting stuff. So, um, now this may be a, a rhetorical question, but how do you feel about matriarchal animal societies, and how did working on the book affect your view, if at all? Well, um, the the societies in which the females are always the most dominant are much more peaceful, right? And the females often use dominance to 
stop fighting and, and make things peaceful. So how I feel about them is it's a good thing. It would be nice if we could, um, you know, elevate those kinds of nonviolent uh, sensibilities and maybe squelch more of the violent chimpanzee within us. Right. Well, no, that's that's true because well, the third section of the book uh, is, is the achieve peace section and really does deal uh, deals with a number of animals, but the focus, of course, is the chimpanzees in Uganda. So that section is rich and textured as, you know, are the other two sections, uh, that's sort of the Safina way. But it feels like you become kind of weary, uh, maybe even exasperated with the way the chimps that you profile are often doing battle or jockeying for position or trying to become the alpha male or recognize yeah. who is the alpha male. And well, that's, that's actually true. And in, in fact, um, chimps were never high on my list of animals to try to see in the wild because everything I read about them, uh, they just reminded me a little bit too much of not the best things in human beings. Yeah. And um, so they, you know, they weren't really that high on my list. And then when I went and we saw them and I, I was there for several weeks, um, I was with a researcher who most of the time was, she, she was studying gestural uh, communication, how they, how they communicate with gestures. And um, that means she wanted to go places where there were going to be the most interactions. And there's the most interaction if you hang around where the males are hanging around. So we would always try to find the older, more dominant males and try to hang around with the alpha male and, and his entourage. And um, what I got, in a sense, I got a slightly skewed view of chimpanzee society because I was seeing a really a really male um, aspect of chimp culture more than the average day to day for most of the chimps most of the time and I and I did get tired of all the bluster yeah. all, all of the jockeying all of the politicking and um, you know the, the chasing the threats of violence the dominance the, the suppression of the younger males it just you know, they made their lives a lot less pleasant than those lives needed to be. Right. Well, it, oh, it, sorry, it turns ahead. out that when we went, when we went then to hang out with females, I realized that oh, you know, it's not always like that for chimps because the females, the females uh, are just much more chill. They're, they, you know, they just don't do all of that kind of stuff. And then I also learned that not even all chimpanzees are like that. That in in West Africa, Uganda's in East Africa. In West Africa. There are chimps that are a lot mellower. The, the male, they are the most dominant individual in those chimps in West Africa are male, but they're not so obsessed with their status as the ones in East Africa are. So that's a cultural thing also. They learn how to be that way. And that means, of course, that they could learn how to be a different way. If you took an East African baby chimp uh, and somehow were able to get it raised in the West African culture, it would just learn that culture. And I think there's some hope for humanity in that, you know, we could learn better ways to be. We're not stuck being the way we are right now. And at this particular point in time, with what's happening in America and in the news, uh, you can see that we have a lot of improvement as far as um, acceptance and as far as being more peaceful, less less um, prone to trying to dominate others. Yeah. Well, a couple things uh, there. One is um, about just the male, and especially in that area where it was probably disproportionately male, maybe. At one point, you write that the chimps create problems for themselves. They're vain, 
and vanity is male, which uh, mm -hmm. that was kind of a powerful observation. I thought so. That kind of vanity is male. Yes. Yeah. You know, it's not a, it's not an aesthetic vanity. It's a it's a dominant vanity. Right. And then, as you're noting, I mean, I happen to be finishing the book when George Floyd was killed, and so I was reading the chimp section when various forms of violence erupted uh, on the streets of, the, uh, of this country. And some of the scenes you described resonated suddenly in a kind of very eerie way beyond just how upsetting they were at face value. So, right, right. Um, you know, I, I was having a conversation with a woman named Lori Marino. She's a neuroscientist. And oh, yeah. She, yeah, I know her. She's been on the show. Okay, yeah. so at, at one point, this was a few years ago, maybe three years ago or so. It was not connected to this book at all. But okay. um, she said, I, I don't remember what we were talking about. I, I, I think it, it had to have been something about male dominance impulses or something like that. And, uh, and probably chimpanzees because she said... Imagine chimpanzees if they had automatic weapons. And then she paused for a beat and she said, well, that's us. And wow. I, I found that really rather chilling. Oh, yeah. Yike. Yeah, that is uh, that is chilling. Man. Yeah, well, that makes you... Sometimes you think, well, why can't we and uh, others be more like the bonobo, I guess, right? Yes, exactly. Yeah. Yes, exactly. And, in fact, I, I wrote an article um, you can find on the web. It's called, I think the exact title is, The Sexy Happy Ape We Might Have Been. And just saying that, you know, it's, it's, it's an, kind of an accident that we live in a male-dominated, uh, that well, our species tends to be male-dominant, and that the males tend to dominate by force because in another species that we are equally related to the bonobos which are almost exactly uh, like chimpanzees on the surface they look very much like chimpanzees but they're a different species the dominant individual in any bonobo group is always female yeah. and they 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 simply don't hurt each other and when, when chimpanzee groups meet other groups of chimpanzees, there's a, a territorial clash that can turn fatal. That never happens in bonobos. Usually they either check each other out and then just go back into their own territory, or they or they mingle. Sometimes they, they mingle with an orgy to go with it just to make sure everybody is good. And, um, you know, that's in stark contrast. And uh, it, it, And we are exactly as related to bonobos as we are to chimpanzees. So, yeah. in, in a way, you know, it's just like, wow, we we missed. <laughs> right. We missed having a totally different way of being. And isn't it interesting in that same way that, that bonobos are a very singular society and sort of a small culture, to use your word of the book, um, found in just a very isolated place, and that's it. That's it for yeah. bonobos. So, yeah. um, right, right. There must be something there that... Um, yeah. So yeah, uh, nobody knows. Nobody knows really what the underlying reason is about why they're that way. It it could be just by chance. It started that way and it got locked in. Just just like male dominance can get locked in, or it might have been something more ecological. Um, some people have suggested that where bonobos live, there is just a lot more food all the time. So there's a lot less reason. There's no reason for groups to be territorial with each other um, and and uh, you know fight over territory because everybody has enough which is the main reason for fighting over territory is to protect your your food and your other resources um, 
So that's just a suggestion. Nobody knows for sure, though. Yeah. Well, they are the sort of classic make make love, not war counterparts. So uh, there's something to be said there for sure. Yeah. But, um, yeah. So one, uh, speaking of something more upbeat, uh, one universal quality you seem to encounter in your travels uh, for the book is the importance of play. And I think it's in the macaw section where you, where you note that animals play because it feels good. So, I mean, it's hard to argue that point, but what are some of the ways that we or the researchers that specialize in those animals determine that so that it, I mean, it makes sense and it would certainly be hard to argue, but how do we know that that's how the animals feel about it? Well, it's sort of logical inference and what other explanation can fit or what other explanation fits as well. And yeah. really no other explanation fits as well. Um, play almost always, maybe always involves physical skills that that basically help develop the skills that you would need in life anyway and just general surviving you know there's like chasing and pouncing and grabbing you know if you're a chimpanzee and you're running around and you have to scramble up trees and swing around on vines because you're chasing each other well you you, you have to be very good at doing that on a day-to-day -day basis when you grow up because that's what you have to do to live if you're a chimpanzee. If you're a, a wolf, uh, you know, you chase, you tackle, you wrestle, and um, those are the skills you're going to need. But what would make you do that if you're, if there's no other thing motivating you, if you're not actually trying to kill something or you're not actually climbing a tree to get food? Well, it, it, it has to feel good. Otherwise, I can't conceive of another reason and you can easily see that when these animals are doing it they're having fun why why do we know they're having fun because they're chuckling they're they have their play faces on they very much know the difference between somebody who's chasing them trying to hurt them and somebody who's chasing them just to have a good time because there's a lot of handicapping that goes into it you know i'm not going to hit you or bite you as hard as i can because we're playing and we both understand that that is universal in play it's very easy to see that in in basically the one species that people in our culture know best which is dogs sure makes sense uh, this is talking animals on wmf i'm duncan strauss and i'm speaking with carl safina marine ecologist and author most recently of becoming wild how animal cultures raise families create beauty and achieve peace this interview was recorded monday so as you were describing that dr safina i remember that somewhere i think it was pretty early in the book and it was kind of an aside about anthropomorphizing and sort uh -huh. of and there seems to be an ongoing debate in in people who study uh, animals and animal behavior but there were times as I got through the end of this book where I thought, not that you intended it this way, but it felt like you could sort of see this book as kind of a big raised middle finger to the people who s dismiss the idea of anthropomorphizing animals and assigning those kinds of qualities and behaviors to animals. Is that... Uh... Well, I'm not sure that I would want to affront anybody as much as I would like to disabuse them of what I think is a very mistaken notion. Yeah. The mistaken notion is that humans are the only ones that have any and all human emotion and, uh, and human logic, that other animals act in ways that are completely logical and totally make sense, and they're motivated by many of the same emotions that we inherited. We didn't invent fear or lust or, uh, or hunger or defensiveness. We inherited those things from other animals, just like we inherited our skeleton, our organs, our nervous system. So 
why we would say that uh, you know another animal has a skeleton or another animal has a heart and lung, but only humans have any emotions is very strange to me. When obviously a lot of animals have emotions, they run from danger because it scares them. Yeah, you know, I mean, it's it's just very obvious. And the people who study free living animals. Um, do not have any kind of hang-up about this idea at all, and they, uh, they're, they're not really concerned with anthropomorphism. In fact, many of them, their best first guess at what an animal is doing is to compare it to what a human would do in similar circumstances, yeah. which is very, is very logical. It's what, who I find is most hung up about it are science writers who are not actually scientists and were simply trained when they were young that you're not allowed to do this, say this, or think this way. And, you know, in science, there shouldn't be, uh, and in real science, there aren't rules about what you're allowed to say, do, or think. You're supposed to investigate and go where data and logic lead you. Data and logic make up science. Yeah. Now, you know, there are a lot of, because science is, science is practiced by people, and people are imperfect, there are people who have rules and are kind of stuck up about things, but it's not supposed to work that way in science. What's supposed to do happen in science is you look carefully, you take notes or measure or study in some formal way, and then you um, try to explain what you've seen in a way that hopefully is correct. Yeah. And that's how it's supposed to work. The, the, you know, the thing that has rules about what you're not allowed to think or say uh, is is not science. And that's the, that's the great and freeing thing about science is that you really can continue to learn about the way the world actually is. And we certainly have a lot to learn about that. Right. Well, that's the thing. I mean, it's almost like a parallel to the scientific method itself that as you get out and you study things and see animals and study really, like you kind of, at least for this book, if not otherwise too, kind of embed really with scientists that have these specialties, you know, Shane Garrow with the sperm whales and so on. So you really get, you're not just there for a brief time and say, all right, well, this is kind of what I saw on Wednesday, but this is what I saw over time. So when you're seeing those things and you're thinking, well, this is how they're reacting, they are displaying grief or that poor um, mother chimp is carrying around the dead infant for a number of days. I mean, at that point, if you're not seeing emotions and, and other behavior that, yeah, you might attribute to humans, I'm not sure what else you would arrive at, what other conclusion you would arrive at. Yeah, nothing that really makes any sense, yeah. actually. Yeah. So, uh, all right. So we know better, Dr. Sabine. I think that's what we're saying here, right? <laughs> so, uh, we hope so. Yeah, that's right. So we have just about reached the end of our time. We've been speaking with Dr. Carl Safina. The new book is Becoming Wild, How Animal Cultures Raise Families, Create Beauty, and Achieve Peace, which you can get wherever you get your book. And you can find out more either at carlsafina.org, it's S-A-F-I-N-A.org, or safinacenter.org. And so, Dr. Safina, thank you so much for making the time again to join us on Talking Animals. Oh, well, I'm always honored to have you spend some time with me, so it's always a pleasure. Thank you. Thanks a lot.